welcome to the Weather of the Mind podcast. I'm your host, Doug Krish. Good day to you. Today's episode is a book review and a rest in peace tribute to Gail Sheehy. She died this year, and I've always wanted to read her book, Passages. You've seen this book probably on bookcases growing up, or your own bookcases, 30 or 40 years ago. This book came out in 1976 with a very distinct, very 70s coloration, tonal. If you check out an image of it, you'll see. So the subtitle for this is Passages, Predictable Crises of Adult Life. So this is a book that she wrote exploring like the patterns of adult development. Adulthood is not just one plateau. What are the peaks and troughs of that experience generally? But I also want to talk today about Election Day. Just a few little Election Day notes, historical notes. This is the Weather of the Mind podcast. We're bringing you practical approaches to emotional health. Try to engage in conversations about how to make education more lifelong and more practical. I want to make a note two weeks from now, the next episode will be the title episode from David Foster Wallace's Consider the Lobster, the essay with the same title, Consider the Lobster. And you could find a link to that on the website under the upcoming shows tab. It's going to be a great essay. David Foster Wallace, in this essay, he was assigned to write about the Maine Lobster Festival. And he really explores what is the lobster as an animal, as a living creature. And he also explores what is the attraction to these these big festivals. What do they really have to offer? As usual, very pithy, insightful, engaging essay. Please join us for that in two weeks. All right, now back to the today's show. I am recording this episode just a few days before this 2020 election. No matter the result, it's a big historical day. It's going to have big turnout. It's very uh, exciting. There's a lot of excitement in the air. Uh, I almost feel this excitement is a bit distracting to my thoughts. I recorded this podcast yesterday, but it was just, it went down too many paths. There was like, too much, too much stimulation. So I try to rein it in, write a new outline and come back with it today. But in a few days, we got Election Day, but also this weekend's Halloween. We have a full moon and a blue moon on Halloween, so it's kind of exciting energy in the air. And then with Halloween, then you have All Saints Day and All Hallows and Dia de los Muertos. So Dia de los Muertos is a fascinating holiday, and I did my third episode, episode three on Dia de los Muertos, and it was considered one of the strongest early episodes of the Weather of the Mind series. So if you want to learn more about Dia de los Muertos, episode three, check that out. If you want to burn two hours and learn a lot about election history, you head over to Wikipedia. You can go from election to election throughout American history. Anyway, so I take my notebook and I, I wrote down every election. I wrote down who was the vice president, who was the president who won, who was the president and the vice president who lost. Uh, if there were third or fourth parties involved, I put them in there. What were the final results and percentage, this sort of thing. But I also made a note of what was the turnout each cycle. Because I wanted to see, because this year is supposed to be a real historic turnout, so I wanted to handicap that. I wanted to think about, um, I wanted to try to estimate what would be a good goal, what's reasonable. So, if we're looking at turnout... In the early part of the Republic, we're talking about 1780s, 1790s, 1800s. Turnout was kind of low, 20, 30%. But then it really spiked in 1812, got in the 40s, 
and really spiked in 1828, 57. So it almost bumped into new plateaus, getting as high as the in the 80s by 1840. So 80% of potential voters came out to vote. And it would stay in the 80s and the 70s generally through the 1800s, a very politically active period, at least in terms of election turnout. And it drops suddenly in 1904. Maybe we're getting into more modern times, there's more distractions, but things start to shift. And in the 1900s, voter turnout percentages are usually around in the 50s. In the 50s is pretty much the average. There was a bunch of times we got over 60s, uh, the last one being in 1960, 62%. But basically the last 50 or 60 years has been between 50 and 55 as normal. We got a little higher in 2008 with 58%. So that's a little bit of a sense of what to expect as we look at voter turnout this year. I don't know what to expect. That's a, Once we get the result, we'll be able to compare it historically. One thing I really wanted to make a note of, though, is I talk a lot about rituals and building good rituals and rituals stabilize. Well, I want to pay respect to this ritual. As a country... We've come together every four years now for 59 times in a row. This ritual has not been broken for 59 times in a row. Every four years we voted for a president in this country. And think about that. Think about, so we're in 2020 now, but 50, 60 years ago it was going all through the 1900s every four years. Through World War I, through World War II, through the Great Depression. Every four years, transfer of power. And then 1800s, all through that, all through the Civil War, all through the tumultuous periods before the Civil War and afterwards, every four years, voted a new president, going all the way back to the 1780s. 1788, December into January 89 was the first election. So a country like a family or like a relationship or like an individual is a work in progress. And it's helpful to compartmentalize in that we may be frustrated with something about our country or our family or ourselves. But we also need to celebrate the good. And the fact that we've been able to come together and have this election every four years for 230 odd years is quite amazing. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, let's talk about passages. Passages, passages. So let me jump in and uh, give you a quick preview and then hear from, hear from Gail Sheehy's own voice in her writing from the introduction to this book. Like I said, this book came out in 1976. Gail Sheehy was independent intellectual slash journalist. This was her probably biggest book. It really kind of caught the zeitgeist of the mid-70s. People are coming to accept a, a more psychological and anthropological view on life. And she wanted to see if adults had different stages in their growth, similar to how we view children as having different stages in their growth. And if the stages moved in similar ways from adult to adult uh, in, in different social settings and social upbringings. So she basically wanted to explore the peaks and troughs and try to see if there are, are there predictable crises. I love that. Predictable crises of adult life. That's why I resonate with this book because I like to think about predictable. I like to think about a proactive emotional health, proactive health in general. Why are we 
not being more predictive of the challenges in our lives, which that's what enables us to be strong and to be ready. I mean, I'm an, I'm an Eagle Scout. Be prepared. You know, that was the, that was the ethos. Kind of like have this camping survival mentality. So if I, if I see that there are important challenges that are not being addressed, like emotional health challenges, proactively, that's one of the fires that keeps me alit. Is that the right word? Alighted? That's one of the fires that really helps keep me moving on this, this sort of mission to help build more uh, proactive education that builds, builds healthy lives in anticipation of the challenges to come. Okay, okay. So let's jump into some of these excerpts. I found three or four nice ones for you. Quote, as we reach midlife in the middle 30s and early 40s, uh, pause, one thing you realize that in the 70s, the lifespan or the presumption of the lifespan was not um, as it is today. She's really talking about midlife in the mid 30s into the 40s, where I feel like for many of us, now midlife is kind of maybe mid 40s into the 50s into the 60s okay and back to the quote as we reach midlife in the middle 30s and early 40s we become susceptible to the idea of our own perishability if an accident that interrupts our life occurs at this time our fears of mortality are heightened we are not prepared for the idea that time can run out on us or for the startling truth that if we don't hurry to pursue our own definition of a meaningful existence, life can become a repetition of trivial maintenance duties. In normal circumstances, without the blow of a life accident, these issues affiliated with midlife are revealed over a period of years. We have time to adjust, but when they are thrust on us all at once, we cannot immediately accept them. The downside of life comes too hard and fast to incorporate. Okay, so basically she had this happen to her. She experienced a very traumatic near-death exposure to death experience. She was reporting on the fighting that was going on in Northern Ireland in the 70s. And she was actually there on the front lines as a reporter for Bloody Sunday when there was a massacre between the Protestants and the Catholics. As she says... A quote, in my case, this unanticipated brush with death in Ireland brought the underlying issues of midlife forward in full force. End of quote. So basically, part of her thesis is that when we have we have to kind of acknowledge all of life, and that includes accepting our own death as we understand it. And this is a very terrifying part of human life, but it's something that we all must deal with. So she's talking about how we deal with that and kind of come to peace with that. And so she sees death as a, as a very big variable in the midlife crisis, the midlife process. Okay, uh, moving right along. Okay, a few pages down the road. Let's jump in here. She's talking about, so she did 115 interviews with people over, I think, a few, a few years, try to get a sense of their life, but try to probe into their internal ebbs and flows. So much of what we see about others is their external. You know, what are they accomplishing? What are their kids? Who are their kids? What are they growing? You know, what are they doing? You know, think about the pictures and think about what people exchange on social media. It's a lot of external. But we, have, we each have this deep emotional internal life. That is quite fascinating. It has its own ebbs and flows. So in this book, she goes through and gives us a lot of small case studies about these characters and the internal ebbs and flows that she observed. So here she is, quote, 
The more I interviewed, the more I noticed similarities in the turning points people described. Not only were there other critical points than at midlife, but they came up with a relentless regularity at the same ages. People were baffled by these periods of disruption. They tried to connect them to outer events of their lives. Side note, very good point. Let me repeat, they tried to connect them to our, so period, people might have internal disruptions, but they don't recognize it as such, so it's very easy to throw it on things around you. Back to her, they tried to connect them to outer events of their lives, but there was no consistency to the events they blamed, whereas there was a striking consistency to the inner turmoil they described. At certain points along the life cycle, they would feel stirrings, sometimes momentous changes of perspective, often mysterious dissatisfactions with the course they had been pursuing with enthusiasm only a few years before. I began to wonder if there were, in fact, turning points in the lives of adults that were predictable. Okay, great, great introduction point she made there. Love it. Good writing. Rope us right in. Okay, moving along. Page 11. Another little excerpt. Quote, The years between 18 and 50 are the center of life, the unfolding of maximum opportunity and capacity. But without any guide to the inner changes on the way to full adulthood, we are swimming blind. When we don't fit in, we are likely to think of our behavior as evidence of our inadequacies, rather than as a valid stage unfolding in a sequence of growth, something we all accept when applied to childhood. It is even easier to blame our periods of disequilibrium on the closest person or institution. Our mother, our marriage, our work, the nuclear family, the system, we seize on the cop-out. That's a really great point she makes. A lot of times we have internal chaos, we don't recognize it as such, and we want to throw the blame somewhere. So I hope I'm giving you a good sell. You could see that if you like case studies and you like this line of exploration, this book is probably worth a visit. And while some of her phrasing or her tones or her observations are outdated, they're not because this is a slice of psychological and anthropological observation from the 1970s. That's 45 years ago. Life has changed a lot. But part of the insight of reading her is exploring that perspective in the 70s. I'd like to read you one more excerpt from the introduction. This is the final paragraph. I think it poses an interesting philosophical question. She begins, We all have an aversion to generalities, thinking that they violate what is unique about ourselves. Yet the older we grow, the more we become aware of the commonality of our lives, as well as our essential aloneness as navigators through the human journey. Gradually, the fragments of lives of people I had previously written about and those I was busy interviewing began to come together as parts of a coherent composition. Generalization scared me less and less. I reread an observation by Willa Cather with a mixture of amusement and startled recognition. So here she goes with the Willer Cather quote. There are only two or three human stories, and they go on repeating themselves as fiercely as if they had never happened before. So one of the things this kind of book will leave us with is a reflection on the uniqueness and also the commonness of humans, of humans across the world, through if, even through different times and generations. 
All right, it's been a stimulating and fun time. I hope you're taking care of your bodies. Get that pulse up. Climb a hill, drink some water, eat some oatmeal. Mm. Be well, much love. See you in two weeks. Join us for that Consider the Lobster episode with David Foster Wallace. Okay, bye-bye.